Hola, my wonderful listeners, and welcome to another episode of Maria's Media Minute. It's been a long time. Perhaps a long, long time. That's the name of the episode that I'll be recapping of The Last of Us on HBO Max, episode 3, in fact, as well as getting into a little show you might have heard of called The Mandalorian. I'll be recapping and reviewing the first two episodes of season 3 on Disney+, Plus, as well as standing my Pedrito on a recent episode of Saturday Night Live. Also, I have some thoughts about where Maria's Media Minute is going to go in the future, and what do y'all think about it becoming an all-queer podcast? Do we like? Do we love? Let me know. Get ready for it. Let's go. All right, so I'm like looking forward to talking about this one, listeners, and it is The Last of Us Season 1, Episode 3 on HBO Max, entitled Long, Long Time. This episode in particular was directed by Peter Hoare, and as always, we have on the crew the creator um, of the video game, titled by the same thing, Neil Druckmann and um, written by Craig Mason. And if you are a sci-fi fan of the current or the past, Craig Mason was also the creator of Chernobyl, which you can also watch on HBO Max. And just a fun fact, and how all the gays are connected, (laughs) um, Peter Hoare um, is the husband of a vegan Instagrammer influencer that I also follow um, named... Richard Macon, um, and the two are married and British and lovely. So just want to throw that fun fact in there for all my vegan listeners. Uh, anyways, back into the episode. So at the beginning of the episode, we see uh, Joel and Ellie played respectively, respectively by Pedro Pascal Joel and Ellie by Bella Ramsey, also a British actor, um, but has an American accent in this show. Joel, a little bit of a Texas accent to match the character he represents in the game. So we see Joel and Ellie, who they've just come off the last episode where they lost Tess and her self-sacrifice and told Joel had had promised to get Ellie um, to where she needs to be. And uh, Joel and Ellie stop at Bill and Frank's house in Lincoln in this quaint little town where we get to see the backstory of Bill and so, and where he meets, um, love is his life. So we get introduced to these two characters, which, uh, Joel and, uh, Bella reference. Oh, in previous episode. So we see Bill play the lovely Nick Offerman, Offerman, as you know, in Parks and Rec. He is a, not a doomsday prepper, but a survivalist. He likes to distinctly, um, make sure that people know the difference and is the survivalist by rigging his house with a electric fence along with many more booby traps and wires around um, to keep out obviously the clickers and the infected as well as raiders anybody else um, as you have probably heard in the show um, and his love letter to Frank and whoever reads it Joel etc that he doesn't really like people, so he wasn't too bummed about the uh, uh, cordyceps 
apocalypse happening happening um so anyways we see a uh, big old rough looking hairy very hairy <laughs> bearded up um bill played by nick offerman and uh follows the timeline of him and uh frank's relationship so the outbreak started in 2013 and uh we see four years later so that'd be 2017 is when frank um literally falls in love um with bill so we see frank fall into one of bill's traps and they meet and Frank reveals where he's from and traveling from and that he hasn't eaten in two days and kind of giggles and chuckles that that doesn't really sound a lot but he really really likes some food and the kindness from the stranger and I forgot to say Frank is played by the lovely kind Australian um also daddy uh, we'll talk about that in a minute of all of the daddies in this episode of Murray Bartlett as familiar played by uh was also in white lotus amongst many other credits to this wonderful actor so we have uh frank and bill meeting bill um relinquishes his power the stern uh facade that he has and uh, lets frank in has a meal takes a shower and this is when uh, the writing is beautiful, and it just begins the sad and heartbreaking um, relationship of Bill and Frank, which um, does occur in the game, um, but in the game versus the show, uh, as far as what I've learned and listened to the accompanying podcast to the HBO Max series, that Bill, uh, we know Bill is a queer character in the video game uh, because when we met him Frank has already uh, passed away but the writers wanted to really expand and show the queer representation in the show and I think it really blossoms and flourishes as we're going to get into right about now in this scene where um, Marie or Frank uh, Marie's character Frank is eyeing this uh, baby upright is it an upright yeah um piano that uh Baby Grand, 1948, that I think belonged to his mother's because we see that Bill is in his mother's house. And um, so Frank is eyeing this piano and really wants to play it. So he does, looks in the piano bench for some uh, songbooks or for some sheet music and finds Long, Long Time by Linda Ronstadt and turns to it. Um, And Bill is, uh, not happy with his performance, so scoots him over and sits down to play a much more melodic, somber, sad, tearful, his version of Long Long Time, where good old Frank can pick up that that song was not about a woman, but maybe somebody else, in which he lands a precious, tearful, I see you, you're valid, you were enough, kiss. On Bill's lips, which he does not deny, and they continue to kiss, make their way to the bedroom. Frank leads Bill through his first uh, and MSM and command uh, sexual uh, event, um, 
sexual interaction. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> In uh, which camera cuts to three years later, I believe, and a fight occurs between Bill and Frank, um, which Frank just wants to make their home more curb appealing. That's all that Frank wants. And he begs, can you give me at least that for us? And so Bill does. And cut to 2023. We see Bill rolling Frank around in a wheelchair. And it's never revealed explicitly in the show um, what Frank has. But the creators, Craig and Neil, um, do mention that it's probably ALS or MLS, um, a degenerative disease, where Bill is taking care of Frank. We see sh- 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 shots of Frank painting and Bill taking care of him. And this lovely, as we can see in the wonderful fan art out in the um, interweb, inter-universe, that um, the simplest of moments and you growing them them growing their own food of strawberries is such a sweet symbolism of this that they grew together and creating new life right in this destructive apocalyptic world it's just so beautiful and as I'm sure uh you've heard if you're obsessed like me um damn that must be a real good strawberry to hear the classic Nick Offerman giggle which is ever so familiar in Parks and Rec um, which makes me want to go back and watch the show just for even more Nick Offerman giggles. Anyways, and so yes, we see the lovely strawberry moment. And um, Frank, he knows, he knows death is coming upon him. The precipice is coming. He's reaching that precipice and asks, as we see later, um, Bill to help him have his last day, right? And it's very, it's giving the notebook, it's giving old elder relationships, which I'm guessing meaning they're about 70 by this time. And oh, so close of the timing was just before, or uh, a little bit before um, Ellie and Joel arrived to their house, their home. Um, And so it's just a beautiful story of, you know, two men, one finding each other. In which the director, Peter Horace says, is Bill a gay man? Is he just Bill? Does it matter? Do male relationships have to be defined in binary terms? Of course not. End quote. As this is from the Gay Times article, The Last of Us, Episode 3 Recap Interview. And I agree with what Horace mentions. We see their relationship build, the ups and the downs, as Frank's character says, the good days and the bad and he's been fulfilled and that's where we see the character's life ends and more about it in the letter that Bill writes um, to Joel. A little bit more about queer representation from this Gay Times article for context and um, this episode and characters representing a genre and here's a little snippet from that Gay Times article. Authentic queer representation is, not that you need reminding, still scarce across all genres. 
parentheses, cinema only just received its first major gay rom-com with bros. That's just the uh, major studio, um, just for reference for that, as we know queer media has existed long before in different uh, platforms, but particularly with an action and horror. Still reading from the article. The Walking Dead, which also combines both genres with a post-apocalyptic wasteland and feral undead creatures, continuously failed its minuscule number of LGBTQ plus characters across 11 seasons. What? I did not know The Walking Dead had 11 seasons. Obviously, I did not watch it. The Old Guard, Netflix's 2020 action blockbuster with Charlie Theron, broke new ground with Maran Kansari and Luca Marinelli Spears. Same-sex couple did not see that. Although their limited screen time was not enough to make much of an impact on future blockbusters. This episode of this is, uh, The Last of Us, long, long time, serves as an antidote of sorts to what came before. Bill and Frank are front and center. Homophobia isn't present within the narrative. And tired LGBTQ plus tropes don't have an easy say, have a say here. Bill and Frank are as capable as the heterosexual counterparts at survival, maybe even more so, hence their long and illustrious life. The sexualities aren't defined, and neither of them embark on a journey of self-discovery. These stories are still important, of course, but in a world of clickers and bloaters and so forth, no one gives a damn. <laughs> Straight into the point, thank you, Gay Times, for that wonderful um, summary and reflection, as I also agree. And with that, I am going to leave this end of this podcast episode with this poem that I wrote for Bill and Frank in Frank's perspective. I see you, he said, with this kiss, you don't have to be alone anymore. We can take care of each other. With this strawberry, I will protect you like I did it from predators and raiders so precious and sweet. Like we've come to be a thing of beauty amongst the devastation. With these walls, you let me in, and I broke them down. Aren't you glad I did? Now got me these wishes on my last day. Oh, there's been good ones and bad ones, but this one is good. The rings, the boutique, the rabbit and Beaujolais. Cheers, my dear, to the last of us. Cheers, Bill and Frank and Murray Bartlett, Nick Offerman, Craig Mason, Neil Druckmann, and of course, everybody else part of the cast. Don't know who an intimacy coordinator is, if there is one, but shout out to y'all and your team. And thank you again for filling my heart. And I can't wait to see how even more relationships blossom on The Last of Us. And finally, I give it. Five out of five clicks, no pun intended. Wink, wink, if you know what I mean. Can't wait for more episodes. Alrighty, my Star Wars fans out there, we're going to get into The Mandalorian Season 3, beginning with Episode 1. Just first off, a little context and background. I am a Star Wars fan. I'm not like a super geek or anything like that. Shout out to all my super geeks out there. But I feel like I'm just slowly getting back into the universe, so don't at me if I get a couple of things not correct or anything. And just for reference, I am referencing um, IGN articles that review each episode as it comes out. So shout out to the IGN writers and geeks over there. So we begin. This episode is called The Apostate. And at first I was like kind of confused. It jumps right into an action sequence where um, 
current Mandalorians are fighting a giant alligator dinosaur monster thing, uh, which is kind of funny. I'm like, uh, why are we bathing and having a good time doing, uh, initiation ceremonies when there's a giant alligator in there, but whatever. Um, so we get to see this action sequence, which is pretty good. And of course, Mandalorian or Dindarjan flying in on this new starfighter to, um, get some answers, answers he's need. We see that, um, Rogu and him have reunited. Um, I love seeing the reactions to the new Mandalorian episode and season when people are like, what, what happened? That's right. You got to check out the last three episodes, five, six, and seven in the Book of Boba Fett series. So yes, Disney purposely, uh, wrote that that way. If you want that inside scoop of all that, um, so that's where it sets us up for the beginning of season three. And then we see Mandalorian, Grogu back on the planet Navarro, which I was like, oh, isn't Cara Dune the Marshall hat? But there's some controversy over the actor who played Cara Dune last season. So I find out more about that if you want to. I think that's the reason why that actor is no longer here. Um, and we get to, uh, Moff Gideon, not Moff Gideon, whoa, Moff Gideon is in prison somewhere by the Republic. Um, I meant Grief Karga, there we go, um, as he's looking regal as ever in his cape that needs to be carried by tiny little droids, and um, then walking through the new Navarro city, um, it definitely gave me Renaissance vibes, thriving and flourishing with the townsfolk about. And Grief is confused about why uh, Grogo is still with Mandalore, but he needs to uh, redeem, wash away his sins in the living waters of the uh, mines of planet Mandalore. So that's what his uh, mind is set on, and that's where he's headed. While they're walking through town, they are bombarded by a squad of pirates one of them I thought the makeup and the character very much much looked like Davy Jones so I'm gonna reference that a little bit later as I'm recapping um episodes one and two they're attacked um and they fight them off and now uh Mandal or Armando is trying to rebuild a, a droid friend that he made in the past season and uh, they're looking for parts um, and Grief introduces Mando to these Anzellans, um, very much a nod to reminding me of the little tiny aliens in the Men in Black series, because Din has to, like, squat and get into the little Din, um, so they try to rebuild, um, uh, the tall, uh, nurse robot, um, but uh, unfortunately, his hardware is busted, and he's resorted back to his original Kill 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 programming, so that's not gonna work out for, um, Mando. And in this scene, um, Grogu is so cute with the baby and Zealots, where he just wants to play with them, he just wants to be, he just wants them to be his toy. Um, and we see Din reprimanding baby Gro- 
Grogu with saying bad baby. So I just feel like their relationship continues to grow and you can see their interactions with one another, which is quite astonishing. Again, shout out to the puppeteers, animators, everybody working on baby Grogu's movements. Um, is, yeah, you can definitely see throughout um, these action sequences and in his first two episodes, uh, Grogu's growth and obtaining of the force as a power. So that droid's not going to do, but they're still going to head to see an old friend. And at the end of the episode, um, Baby Grogu, wow, getting mixed up, Grogu and Mando um, visit Bo-Katan um, to see if she has more answers and can guide him in the direction he needs to go. And it's a very much Game of Thrones moment um, where they approach the hallway Bo-Katan, apparently her rebellion or to take back the planet of Mandalore is not going too hot because it's only her. Everybody turned on her. She's kind of a sour sack because she doesn't have a dark saber. Dark saber and um, apparently people don't think she's going to be the leader. So um, that's where we leave off on that episode. And now let's get into episode two. Episode two is called The Minds of Mandalore. And we see... Uh, reunited with Pelly, played by the wonderful um, Amy Sedaris, and they're on Navarro again, and it just happens to be the, be the week and the day of Abunta Eve, um, the same holiday commemorated by the pod race in The Phantom Menace, um, the group of Star Wars movies with um, Obi-Wan Kenobi with Ewan McGregor, forgot his name for a second. Um, anyway, so we get the lovely humor from Pelly, and we get to see a shot, which I think is cool, of uh, Grogu and Mando and the Starfighter flying through the fireworks, which made me think of a parallel similar scene in uh, Wonder Woman 2, where uh, Wonder Woman and Steve are also traveling through fireworks, so it's definitely giving me those same kind of vibes. It's very cute when the two of them are in the Starfighter together and um, Grogu is now sitting on his lap and is kind of snuggled up to daddy. And um, again, according to this IGN article, um, Din's tone has shifted since being reunited with Grogu in a way that shows he's truly embraced the child as an adopted son who needs to be fully initiated into the way of the Mandalore. These lessons, along with those Grogu got from Luke Skywalker, will serve him well as he starts taking a more active role as a character rather than an unpredictable asset, sometimes capable of being linked in out of trouble, which he does in this episode. So we go to the planet of Mandalore. Mando's talking about that and his past and how he grew up on the moon close to Mandalore but never been to the actual planet. And they get to the mines with the new droid, which is kind of like wah wah wah, like very like klutzy and doesn't want to do any of the things that Mando asks of him and clunky falls over. So they get to the planet and he wants to take a air sample, make sure it's safe to go and walk out on the planet. And uh, the droid only gets so far, falls over, Mando goes to find him. And then he gets bombarded by these uh, creatures in the mines, in the caves. And then he gets into more trouble by being captured by this 
uh, very similar to the, uh, what were they called? The Scorpio robots um, in the last season of The Mandalorian. Or no, was that in the end of Boba's Fett, episode 7, the book of Boba Fett. And so very similar, like, droid was very crab-like to me, too, which I will reference in an extra that I'll be talking about having to do the Mandalorian that I want y'all to check out. But more of that later, back to episode two. Uh, Grogu is there as well, and Mando says, escaped, um, and go find Bo-Katan, so that's what he does. Meanwhile, Mando is trapped by this, again, giant bug-like crab robot, um, and he's perhaps on a spit rose because it begins turning over a fire, and then it's drained from his blood. Hopefully we'll learn more about that. Gogo makes it back to Bo-Katan. She is surprised by this, and of course is going to go rescue Mando as well. So her and Grogu go back through the mines, attacked by the same creatures, uh, but um, Bo-Katan takes them down, and then it's the Mando defeats the crab-like robot, and really is able to wield that dark um, saber, because Mando doesn't have it, it was taken from him. And yeah, you can really see that she knows what she's doing with it, much more stable um, on her feet with it than Mando. So we'll see. Is she going to get it back? Is she the true leader of Mandalore? We shall see. So he's rescued and is on a mission to get to the mine. She said she'll take him there. They get to this, uh, again, more like cave-like setting with some suspicious looking waters. And actually, they don't really look that suspicious. It's very calm. They don't really look that magical. So Mando's ready to get in the water, be forgiven of his sins, his trespasses of taking off his helmet. And he begins to, he just takes off like two things like his cape, but he's pretty much in full gear still. And uh, goes to dip in the magical waters, living waters. Nothing happens. He gets sucked down, probably by another creature, which is true. Uh, Bokotan goes to save him again, and uh, she f- flies down there with her jetpack on and uh, rescues him. I don't know how he got pulled down so deep so quickly, um, but again, this giant sea creature is down there. They escape with no scratches, and that's where the episode ends. So what I like about this episode is, yeah, it's just very simple. Nothing, not a lot going on besides the fight sequences of um, Rando and the creatures and then Bo Katan with the creatures. Yeah, it's very simple. Um, we get to learn more about the history of uh, Mandalore and Man- Mando's relationship with his people and how he wants to teach Grogu in the same ways. So, yeah, apparently according to this IGN article, uh, Mando's given up given up on his redemption, and, um, and we're gonna see more of Bo-Katan's quest to build a new feature for her people. We shall see again, um, and I just want to note some more Mandalorian content if you want to have a grand old hoot of a time, is look up this person on Instagram. They are, go by, I'm pulling it up for now, um, their username is nomad.props, all lowercase, 
Um, and the content creator is Sean G. Him and other folks uh, dress up in Mandalorian costumes and uh, <laughs> create really funny videos. And a couple of them he's been doing this season are uh, chapter recaps without context. <laughs> Check out chapter 17 and 18 with those uh, D.B. Jones, Game of Thrones uh, references that I was mentioning earlier. You will laugh out loud for sure. So shout out now, Band Props, and um, thank you again, IGN, for letting me uh, reference your articles, because I don't know what I do without you. <laughs> Anyways, that's The Mandalorian Season 3, and the first two episodes, I would give, mm, it'd be like uh, three and a half out of four stars, or three and a half out of five clicks, I mean. So what do you think? How many clicks would you give it? Next, we're going to get into Pedro Pascal hosting SNL on Saturday, February 4th, 2023. So first off, I just want to say I'm watching these clips on YouTube after the original air date. I was able to catch a little bit of it live um, and just wanted to talk about my thoughts, reactions, and ratings on it. So just a little bit of context, I am a... SNL fan, uh, mostly of way back original um, OG, it's like the 70s or the 90s SNL, and personally, in my opinion, I think the last decade or so, I want to say after everything after Kristen Wiig's cast, you know, not that funny anymore. I'm like, how many more sketches and originality can we bring and repeat characters? Although, I do say some folks have good impressions of politicians and whatnot. Anyways, so that's a little bit of my context. So let's get into Pedro Pascal hosting. I'll talk about a couple of the sketches that he was in. First off, I will go from the top of uh, the sketch called Waking Up, where Pedro Pascal plays um, somebody that just woke up from a coma. They are in a crash and the scene takes place with his wife next to his bed and the doctor, played by Bowen Yang, and his friends uh, around waiting to make sure, of uh, waiting to be there when he woke up too. So we are introduced to uh, Pedro Pascal's a patient, and he has this funny voice, as King Thompson describes as L.A. Mushmouth. And at first, I was slightly concerned. I'm like, oh no, not, please don't tell me we're making fun of disabled folks. Uh, it's 2023, like, no, goodbye. But turns out, um, I found out in behind the scenes on Pedro Pascal on a late night interview that was his idea, <laughs> um, or came up with this voice for this character that was like Keenan Thompson described LA Mushmouth, very like ballet girl, but exaggerated too. Um, and I was dead, I was dying, it was hilarious, especially. <laughs> when it caught on with the other characters and he was laughing a little bit through it so yeah good job on them and also hilarious watching the late night interview the same interview um uh, was talking about uh yeah him and seth were kind of bantering back and forth and how it's contagious and he was like what up the mandalorian talk like this this is the what <laughs> and yeah so good job on that um Another sketch where we can see Pedro and his cast members bring in character 
is uh, Lisa from Temecula, where Lisa, played by Ego Nordim, um, uh, disrupts her sister's, played by Punky Johnson's, birthday dinner. Um, and Pinto's paying a guest, and really, it's where, uh, Lisa Pintermagula's character is, uh, having trouble cutting her meat, because she likes it very, 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 very well done, and whole gag is, um, the table is shaking, and apparently also, behind the scenes stuff, the rehearsal before they did it live, um, was, didn't go very well, the table wasn't shaking that much, and so they really, Whoever was the prop masters or whatever who was shaking the table in real lifetime really went for it. And apparently Bo and Yang was the first to break character, making Fiddle break character and just like a domino effect. So again, silly, goofy stuff, but it's it's a good relief, I think. Um, uh, the next one I want to talk about is the protective mom sketch, which I think was one of the best of all of them that Pedro was in. Uh, where Pedro plays the protective Latina abuela, um, and the concept is a husband and his, oh no, a man and his girlfriend. I'm just reading this directly from the um video description. A man, Pedro Marcela Hernandez, a new cast member, introduces his white girlfriend, played by Chloe Feynman, to his abuela, um, where they speak Spanish, Spanish, <laughs> um, to one another, and I was just cracking up when good old girlfriend, Chloe Feynman, um, brings her vegan sliders, um, <laughs> over, and Abuela takes them immediately, puts them in the trash, and then, but don't forget, can't forget to save the bat, because we are not wasteful, um, and even though I did not grow up in a a cult a home like this with similar cultural uh values and habits uh a lot of my friends did and so I can just see it all being so reminiscent and true very funny <laughs> and also good job to the casting the casting I meant the casting department for uh Miss Abuela's uh or not Abuela Senora <laughs> They're not, she's not a boiler yet that we know of, so let me just take back that um, terminology uh, of a productive mom. Or productive mom is, again, the name of the sketch uh, for good job to the costume department in uh, Pedro's outfit. Got a little jumbled there, but hope we all know what I mean. <laughs> and so that was probably my favorite of them. Uh, Italian Raiders, not so much, you know, Pedro's role wasn't as big. Um, and then HBO Mario Kart tra- trailer, which I think capitalized on, you know, the show Pedro's in right now, The Last of Us, crossing over with the gargantuan ridiculousness of having a Mario Kart movie come out, uh, which I'm sure if people watched National Sports Day for Super Bowl, that trailer um and the crossover between that and HBO's hit The Last of Us which is quite funny uh where Pedro plays Mario uh and the whole concept is right like taking it from the game from The Last of Us and from the show 
he's got to get, quote, the cargo, i.e. Princess Peach, uh, safely away. And then Bowser is the enemy, and but he's also got a gun, just like his character Joel and all that. It's just, Joel and the Last of Us is just ridiculous. But also, it's like, I would play that game. I don't know if I watch a show about it, but I'm not mad at Mario Kart being in set in the apocalyptic universe. Um, I also love how, uh, not Luigi, but, uh, the, the other characters, like, I'm by, I'm by, can you tell I'm a little rusty on Mario Kart characters and the concept of the game? Um, I did not grow up with Nintendo, I grew up with PlayStation and went over to my friend's house to play Nintendo. So, yeah, HBO Mario Kart, ridiculous, hilarious. And then, of course, there is fan cam assembly, the sketch where Bandero is a teacher and it's set, uh, the scene is set in assembly, light setting, uh, where the students are in the audience explaining to Pedro about this fan cam. Also, I'm not on TikTok, so I'm like, oh, okay, I know people are bringing together actual real life videos, like 15 second clips of fans or, you know, edits. Uh, fan, uh, celebrities that they're standing, but I didn't know that it was called a fan cam, so it just shows you how much I know. Um, and hilarious, it just shows like emphasizes and hyperbole, right? Hyperbole on that Pedro is a daddy. He admitted this in a event, was it Vanity Fair lie detector test that he did? And so he's loving it, he's living it, and uh. I'm here for it as well. And also just like the SNL cast. I would say like mostly millennial age, you know, saying all the Gen Z lingo and uh, terms and whatnot. I'm just like, I don't, do I even know what these mean? Um, again, aging myself there. And the true gag of it all, all this uh, sketch of the scene was um a fan cam of daddy and mommy where we have a special guest sarah paulson come on and my heart was just like grew three sizes as we know as i know and i'm about to tell you if you don't know already in real life pedro and sarah are uh bffs basically have been friends for 30 years and uh we just love to see it so thank you thank you writers and everybody that was a part of the sketch real good on ya hilarious so overall i would like to give uh, pedro on snl probably like a four out of five star there is less i feel like funny or successful not successful they're all good but less funny uh sketches where he's in my favorite protective mom fan can assembly waking up for sure um so yeah, and overall I would give it, four, yeah, four out of five clicks is my rating. And I wanted to give an honorable mention to the weekend update for this, excuse me, of this episode, or this this episode of SNL, as uh, we get to see uh, Michael Che and na, 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 uh, Colin Jost um, giving the weekend update. I actually was like, oh, okay, I know these news stories and uh, could see the satire in it or really just the truth in it. 
And then we had the special guest of Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog famous in Philadelphia, uh, which I could have sworn they did the same character back in the day with an old school cast, with a old school cast, but I can't find any videos about it. So write in the comments, send me a voice message if you know what I'm talking about, uh, because I could have sworn they had a groundhog guest on there before. But anyways, he was hilarious. Um, it reminded me of some, again, some older characters with him smoking, just being just like chillax, relax, that just kind of ridiculous character. Um, and yeah, just overall funny. So I want to take back what I, not take back, but be a more informed critic and viewer of this cast of SNL. I'm glad it's still going. I'm glad they're finding more talent and shout out to all the new cast members and may continue and also Keenan Thompson who has been on for I think 20 seasons 20 seasons 20 maybe not 20 seasons 20 years question mark something like that. I thought he retired but glad he's still there because again he's adding to the overall ensemble of yeah funny and funny actors funny writing and um glad to see it maybe not completely over it yet so yeah that's my review Pedro Pascal or my thoughts and reactions to Pedro Pascal on SNL and go watch it if you haven't do it And that does it for this week's episode of Maria's Media Minute. Thank you for listening as we talked about um, a long, long time, episode three of The Last of Us on HBO Max. Pedro Pascal hosting SNL on NBC. And then The Mandalorian season three, episodes one and two recaps. What Pedro Pascal things are you standing lately? The lovely can't do anything wrong. Makes my heart melt. Love and love and love and and what do y'all think about yeah i'm just uh thinking of turning this into an all queer podcast because i already watched the content so why not have a whole podcast about it what do you think hit me up and don't forget to leave a rating and a voice message all right that does it for now and i'll catch you on the couch with those headphones on